We've made it through the generosity of our patrons to episode 20 of this 20 of farce. these things. Jesus. Thank you for just enabling us. What thus happened? Far. Uh, we are so grateful. So uh, we got a very special episode lined up. But before we get there, I just want to say to episode 20. To episode 20. And all you great people for making this possible. Hey everybody, I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And this is The Mix 6, where we drink six beers and have six conversations. Um, This is going to be a little bit of a special episode. It's special because patrons have passed us through the benchmark, and now you get all six beers for free uh, for two podcasts a month, and one whole podcast for $2 backers and above. So uh, we have less editing that we need to force producer Ross to do. So thank you all Yay. for that. Mm-hmm. Um, Not that we were doing a good job of forcing him to do other editing. Yeah, it was difficult. Right. And, you know, no sound effects shall be had. Um, I'm that's, inspired by silent film, Spencer. Yeah, that's the $8,000 benchmark. Mm-hmm. Get one sound effect in a podcast. <laughs> it will be an MLG air horn. I know. Well, sure. <laughs> the one on my phone that I added myself out of desperation. <laughs> You monster. (laughs) Anyway, the other reason this episode is special is because we've made it to episode 20. We would figure we should go back to our roots. That's right. So, whereas we normally review very good craft beers that are generally quite high uh, in the, you know, taste factor. Right, they're good. um, I have cut off the sleeves of my shirt and put on a Bass Pro trucking hat, and we are doing nothing but beers. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a joke. Nothing but beers from the gas station, and specifically light beers from the gas station. So, strap in for the ride. Uh, But before we get there, we're going to have to rate these for some reason that's beyond me, uh, as if you couldn't guess the rating. So, what is our rating system for this week, Spencer? Well, as you know, our rating system changes from week to week. We rate beers on a five-point scale. A one is a beer that's absolutely awful and has changed your life in the worst way. A five is a beer that has changed your life in the best way. And a three is your run-of-the-mill standard beer. And so this week, we've got a rating system inspired by my wife. Not in that she has done these things, but rather that I said, we need a rating system. And she goes, how about this? And we tweaked and modified a little bit, and here we go. So this week's rating system... Dance moves you're most likely to see at a wedding, right? So these are the... And rating in terms of the ones you want to see that's versus right. not want right. to see. Right, so here's what happens. Inevitably at a wedding, some group dance starts, and you're either excited that it started or you're dreading that it started. Also, you're judging the bride and groom for having a DJ that played it. That played that thing. And here's the thing. Some of them are rated low because you don't even want the social pressure of having to participate in that thing. Yeah. So number one... The, the wedding, the, the dance move you're most likely to see at a wedding that will ruin your life is obviously and without question the chicken dance. Oh my God. When death comes from me, that's what I'm going to hear. That's right. The chicken dance. You don't want to participate in it. You don't want to hear the song come on. It is very literally, I hear the song the come Corinthians on. The Corinthians of dance moves. You look for a bathroom or a door immediately. <laughs> I don't know if that would be Deuteronomy or some one of the begats, you know. The other nice thing about the chicken dance. Love is patient. Love is kind. The other nice thing about the the chicken dance is that it lets you know who your real friends and family are because the people that come over to you and pull you up into the chicken dance aren't in that category. So it's like a really good way of figuring out who's going to get a fucking Christmas gift for me. Okay. Number two, not as bad, but still pretty bad. The conga line. 
Because here's what happens when people get up to do the conga line at a wedding. You're either in the conga line dreading it, or you're the one person sitting down while the rest of the room is in a fucking conga line. No winning there. So (laughs) if a beer is not good or the worst thing you've had, it's a chicken dance or the conga line. The standard bearer for dance moves you see at a wedding... I don't think anybody's really that upset when it shows up. I think that we all expect it. It's safe. It's safe. It's a safe choice. It's the YMCA. Yeah. It's totally okay when it shows up. It's not too long. It's kind of fun. And when it's overall, like, oh, the YMCA was on. Well, that's great. It feels like a wedding now. You know yeah. what I mean? It I did that at my junior high box. dance, too. That's right. That's absolutely right. It's comfortable is what it is. Okay? It's an easy dance to remember. You're just spelling. Right. Yeah. Despite what conservatives might want you to think, <clears throat> the YMCA is a very comfortable dance. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, number four... This one is a little out there, but it's the Tootsie Roll. Mm. I am, frankly, excited to do the Tootsie Roll at a wedding. I'm it's not a saying, deeper cut. It is a deep a cut. A better song. Yeah. That's, it's a really good song. A, we should say it gives, that. It gives you a chance to show off your moves. If I were driving down the road and, the, and, and that song came on, I would be like doing the Tootsie Roll in my car, You know, what, which mm-hmm. doesn't feel safe, so stay <laughs> off the road. You hear the Tootsie Roll on the radio? Pull over is how I feel about that. Okay? And then five... And this one's tough. I had to think on this one for a while. What's the dance move at a wedding you're likely to see or the song that comes on that you're likely to hear and you're like, fuck, I got to get up for that. It's changing your dance wedding experience in the right way. It's Thriller. When Thriller comes on, even though we all don't know the whole dance, we do know the like werewolf up thing. And we're totally okay. Yeah, what Ross is doing right now. He's doing it right now. If we had a television show, you would see producer Ross doing the werewolf up thing. And you know what I'm talking about. It's where you look, you you haunch up and look like you're falling backwards a little bit. But but that you get frame stuck and so you keep going over and over again. Uh, none of us know any other thriller moves except for also kind of like snapping low and bending down a little bit. And then you got the zombie. That's right. The the moving across. That's right. That's right. And then you drop your wrist down and you kind of like you move over. All of us know enough of a little bit of thriller. We can pass. We can cobble together a group dance. And frankly, you're at a wedding. You just want to get through it. That's right. That's right. It's a song for getting by. We're all having fun building this shared moment. And we're all comfortable knowing that no one in the room knows everything here's the you the worst guy in the room would be the guy who got up and knew all of the thriller dance but here's the thing about thriller and why it's so beautiful Sometimes they do the whole thriller dance, but it's like a big like wedding party choreographed. Choreograph. I ain't got to do shit. I'm just sitting at the table drinking, That's listening right. to Thriller. Right. Also a great time. S- still a win. There's no in between. Either it's all good. Yep. Or you ain't got to do anything. That's right. That's why it's a number five. That's yeah. right. So so if if we are lucky enough to grace a beer on this day of gas station beers. That is life-changing in the right direction. I don't think we're going to see it through. I think we are. <laughs> oh, it, you're drinking a Bushlight. So I will fair. be drinking a Bushlight. Yeah. That's right. It'll be a thriller. Uh, so with that, uh, we're ready to move on. We're going to grab some beers. We're going to open them, and then we'll be back just on the other side uh, with our first segment. What have you pulled from the cooler? I am uh, drinking some little brewery in St. Louis called oh. Anheuser Busch. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, I'm drinking their Natural Light, which is the only time in history anyone has called it Natural Natural Light. light. And it says it on the can. I don't think we need a Stillwater rule here. Let's not lie. You were in college. You've had a Natty Light before. So on our reasonably well thought out and terribly charming rating system, where does the Natty Light fall? All right, bear with me here on taste. Probably around a two, but... It's conga line? 
that's uh, disingenuous for the amount of Natty Light I've drinking, drank in my lifetime. Sure. So, yeah. It's going to be a three. It's going to be a three. Oh, okay. So you're modifying here, right? Uh, yeah. Natural Light gets better by volume, yeah. which I think is you true. You built a tolerance for it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think it's true of everyone who's drinking by Natural Light. Does Natural Light not get better by volume? That, no, that's interesting. Like, yeah, the yeah, volume. Let the me volume hear play. in the comments, because right. I don't think anyone will ever disagree with that. No, that's a great modifier. You've, you have either uh, had a keg of it. Right. Or none. Yeah, it's a two with a plus and, one yeah, for volume. Yeah, there's no in between. Yeah, wow. so. What an interesting... So it's, it's a two, but like by the end of a night of natural light, if it's anything like college, it would become a seven. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Interesting. 20 episodes in, and this is the first time we've really started experimenting with how beers get evaluated. That's, yeah. That, folks, is evolution, <laughs> which is the topic, but I'm ching, uh, producer Ross sound effect, which is the topic <laughs> of our first segment dissecting our fun and in dissecting our fun we typically talk about our favorite board games board games we've recently played and want to talk about and their mechanics or we talk about a conceptual element of board game today we're talking about a specific board game evolution another science game another fucking that science I'm game absolutely in love with it despite having art that's I'm not wild about. Right. No, it's like bad it's like bad great bad magazine made for grade schoolers on how to learn about lizards. Yeah. Yeah, that's what the art is. Um and yeah, it's just it's just a really solid game. Like so let, yeah, let's talk about what evolution is first and foremost before we kind of just like vomit um great things about it because we have a lot of great things to vomit about evolution. <laughs> so in evolution you are trying to develop a, a number of different species. You start with a species, which is a small population and a small size. And over the course of the game, you are trying to develop that species and add other species who you're also trying to develop, both by adding population or adding size, choosing a variety of different traits for those spe- species. Up to three. Up to three, including allowing them to be carnivores, where they can meet other species, or to be herbivores, but giving them traits which allow them to consume more food, all the while you're trying to amass a stockpile of food that would feed the number of species you've grown, such that you can satisfy all of them in terms of nutrients and health, and then at the end of each round, you take the food that you are able to eat per the number of species you have, population and size, you score them and that becomes your way of determining who's winning at the end of the game. Who has eaten the most food by way of the number of species they've developed and the amount of those specific species. Yeah, and what I really like about it is that you'd think with drawing these cards to give traits to your species that give them special powers, it would be a game highly dependent upon randomness. What cards did I get? But what I really like is that there's a number of things you can do, like playing cards, like uh, increasing your species population. That's right. Like increasing their body mass. Right. That require you to discard cards. Yep. Um, also, adding food to the general pool that your species pulls from requires you to discard cards. So you normally have a hand of, what is it, five? I don't remember. I'm I think it's five, car- five, four. It actually depends on your number of species. Yeah, that's right. Um, but it's like your number of species plus two or something. Uh, don't quote me on that. Three cards plus the number of species you have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've got all these cards, so you have a wide variety of traits to choose from, but you've also got to use cards to make sure you have a creature that's large enough not to be a victim of predators. That's you right. Have a, make sure you have a large population size. That's so right. Can, eat more food and score more points. Right. And all of those require discards. So um, you're doing all of these really complex things for a win condition that are basically fueled by this single draw and play mechanic. That's right. Discard is 
useful to you as well as playing traits is useful to you. Yeah. Um, what really enamored me with evolution, despite the very simple win condition of eat the most food, yeah. was the way that the cards stacked abilities on top of each other for these like sick cascading effects. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, the way that it actually, in the game mechanics mirrored principles of evolutionary biology, yep. which I cannot have been easy. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's talk about the cascading effects, because you can have some really complex strategies. Yeah, game. for sure. So as you're growing your species, right, as you're adding number of species, you're adding population to your specific species, you've got to eat more food to satisfy the number of creatures, right, which are subcategories of the species, the number of creatures that you're trying to nourish, you're trying to grow and develop. And so a number of the cards that you're able to pull and then place on your species, functionally giving them a specific attribute, if you place your species in the correct order and give specific attributes to certain species, what ends up happening is this nice cascade effect, as you've called it. So the first species that I feed may have an attribute, which also allows it to help feed other species that I also control. So when it's time yeah, for me to operation, that's right. When it's time for me to take food, I can take food for that species and all of its population or a member of its population. And then because it cooperates with the other species I'm also raising, it allows me to take food for those species as well, which serves two functions. One, it ensures that the species I'm cultivating are nourished. And two, it allows me in one turn to pull more food out of the shared food pool, which is important because if there's not enough food in the shared food pool for other places, players to feed their species they lose species which means they're dwindling in the number of creatures for survival and also cards work on your species to your left and your right which is super interesting as a mechanic really cool mechanic so the thing i i stumbled into it i had a carnivore and i also put the scavenger tag on it right and then i had a cooperation on my middle creature so on the left i had my carnivore that could eat other creatures, right. and then a scavenger mechanic, which went to the creature to the right, which had cooperation. So basically what happened was my creature in the middle would eat. It had cooperation, so my creature to my right would eat. Right. Then my carnivore would eat some other player's creature. Scavenger would trigger, so the creature in the middle ate. Cooperation would trigger again, so the creature on the right ate. Right. So I was simultaneously pulling points from other players That's right. and giving them not just to one of my creatures but all three of them yeah there's a really nice multiplier effect yeah you can build some killer chains of effects right that go across your whole board so yeah. it's there's a really deep mechanical uh strategy element to oh, a totally. game that's otherwise fairly simple in terms of its mechanic the most interesting element to me on the other hand is the timing element so all species start off as herbivores they are and this is where the evolutionary biology that's right. comes in because right. if you go carnivore too early right you've killed yourself and destroyed the game that's absolutely right everybody eats plant food from a from a shared pool for a period of time but at some point never go full carnivore never go full carnivore that's absolutely right producer ross but at some point you might pull a carnivore trait which would allow you to turn one of your species into a carnivore which means that it can eat other players creatures or species or your own creatures or species but But, it can only do that but it can only do that so you gotta wait for their population to be high enough to be sustainable that's right and it's got yeah, it's really interesting in that regard. And, and it forces you, as the player who may may turn one of your or all of your species into a carnivore, to figure out what the right time for that transition is. Are there enough other creatures on the board where you could sustain your carnivore? But it also then forces other players 
to make to dis- make decisions that aren't completely self-serving. So some of the nice combinations that you've been referencing are about my ability to chain together multiple creatures getting to eat off one food pole, yeah. right? which benefits me and doesn't really it, it hurts other people. Yeah. But now the three attributes that I may apply to the species that I'm trying to develop, which are all about chaining together food eating combinations. Now I've got to start thinking critically, do I need to put a defensive attribute on those species? For example, horns, which forces carnivores to lose a population. Uh, or a, a couple of the other cards uh, that that increase the body size of your herbivores so that they can't be attacked by carnivores. It forces you to make a decision, do I want to continue to play a self-serving offensive game, or now do I have to start playing a self-serving defensive game so a carnivore can't eat me? So it changes the dynamic of the game, subtly but really significantly. Yeah, and like body mass is important, but it's not important in the early game. That's so right. if you go too big, you have this really big creature, but you're leaving food on the table and like not having good points. So you need to go small and fecund, like right. fertile very early on in the game. And like it just perfectly mirrors this, you know, basic ideas of evolutionary it really niche does. protection. Right. Um, you, it, you can only grow as large in population or size as the environment around you will yeah, allow you to. Yeah, you need to be able to eat shit on the ground. You need to be really fucking tiny, and there needs to be lots of you if yeah. you're going to... And then later, if something else happens, that's fine. Right. But if somebody's like Sabertooth Tiger, and everyone else is like, I'm Moss, it does... Like, it all it all falls apart. Like, yeah. um, so it's, it's really interesting. I will mention one part of the game that no one else engaged with, but I absolutely loved. On the back of the rule sheet, based on the traits you pick, it gives you dumb ass names to name your creature so you can have like extendo nom noms and it's in like these matching tables and um if i had like a precocious fourth or fifth grader or any like junior high kid we were playing games i'd be buying evolution instantly because you know it's silly enough that you could get a kid to play the mechanics are simple enough you get them to play but it's also like teaching them like pretty rock solid basic principles for evolution. Absolutely, theory. yeah. No, I yeah. like I like the biology of the game, right? Yeah. And, and I like coming up with silly names for my creatures, right? Yeah, you were you were the only one at the table who was willing to reference your creatures by their pseudo scientific characteristics. Extendo nom noms for the win, right? Exactly. And I also won the game, and I don't think that's a mistake. Ah, uh, but I think here, that's so pro tip: why I fully engaged with the rule set is what I'm saying. Pro tip: and I've only played the game two or three times now. The first person to go carnivore at the appropriate time tends to win the game and you were very much in that camp so i mean i guess congratulations but also fuck you a little bit <laughs> um having said that uh, I, I and i don't i don't want to misrepresent you i think both of us would highly recommend evolution um i'm not sure if you're just getting into board games that it's it's not utterly easy it's there, not, right. there is some complexity yeah you need you, th- there's some strategic and tactical maneuvering that happens in the game that i think that you're benefited by understanding the complexity of board but if games you're experienced it's something to go for but if yeah. you've played some board games and you're looking to expand your repertoire highly recommend evolution it's been a great game uh, we've played it a couple of times and hopefully we're going to play it again soon mm-hmm. and on that note i'm going to grab another beer and we'll be right back Spencer, what are you drinking? I am I am drinking the the disproof of your we're not going to get any fives theory, dude. It's going to get it's only going to get worse from here. And this is so about. perfect because you introduced what when I at first you blushed, realize the guy who keeps track of our beers is going to put bush light 
in the five. Cup. Well, okay. Spoiler alert. Thanks, Caleb. Uh huh. Yeah, not your party to. Cry I out. saw your face as you drank it. I I understand. Listen. All right. It's good that you have intro. Maybe maybe um, Q. I believe who's keeping uh, yeah. track of most of our Thank beers. You very much. By the who's way. doing an excellent fucking job. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing. It's super cool to see. It's also um, a really abrupt reminder of what the fuck we're doing sometimes. <laughs> so you know, kind of a give and take. Um, You've introduced a really important mechanic here that I think I think I think that our friend who's rating the beer should keep track of. Yeah. Maybe, maybe these exist on a separate scale. Yeah, because these are really like the beer score plus one in your case or in my case two or three. Yeah, because they By matter. Yeah, yeah, they matter. And for mm-hmm. me, Bushlight matters. <laughs> the ice cold Bushlight is the thriller of gas station beers. There's not a better cheap. We did beer. consume something like sixty plus sixty plus of them during the cage match amongst like. Me, you, and two other people. Yeah. No, yeah. the the bush, the bush, ice-cold bush light is the ball game. Um, yeah. It's what you show up for, it's what you stay for, and it's what you go home and want more of. There are certain events where it will only do. That's right. And so I'm so happy to be... I guess I have to give that a five. I'm happy to be drinking it. It is literally all downhill from here, because oh, I know it's in the fucking fridge. It's going to be fucking And it's going to be brutal. Oh, but you know what? Strap in for the ride. We're going to get through it. We're going to fucking get through it, because we're troopers, and we believe in us, and more importantly, we care about you people. Okay? We care. This is for you. Mm-hmm. Having said that, Caleb, what are we talking about? Uh, we're going to talk about, in your number two floating segment pick this week, uh, something suggested to us by Matt from Seattle for our segment, Jukebox and Back. Which is great. I'm so happy the music thing's catching on. Yeah. Because we're, like, real bad at it. Yeah. That's and, the best part. And Matt's finger is deeply on the Mix 6 pulse, because he asks he uh, Jukebox and Back, top three 2000s pop songs. God, I was so excited. is Spencer with a bullet. Just... Yep. I turned on the Google Doc, and just, it came firing out of the screen right into his heart. Literal uh, salivation yeah. when I saw this you question. Couldn't, you could not have tailored a question better for Spencer. It was Pavlovian. Tailored? Yeah. Uh, T-Swift. Yeah. You know, most of her stuff is post the 2000s. It's 2010 and on. So it Sadly, or it would be on there. It would be on there. there were 2010s next time. If the, you want to get your name on the podcast. There were some 2009 gems that I saw, but I thought, no, I'm not going to do that to anybody. There's the, the 2000s was, as I've learned through living them, great for pop music. Mm-hmm. Having said that, we've done something a little bit different. We've both named our top three, but we've also given some honorable mentions, and thanks to what I think is a great insight on your part, a dishonorable mention. Yeah. And so I want to start with you. What's your dishonorable mention? My dishonorable mention? Yeah. Uh, so it's 2009, Kings of Leon's Use Somebody. See, and I fucking like that song. No. I like that whole album. No. Man. Brutal. So, Kings of Leon was in the 2000s, perhaps one of the greatest rock bands to come out of an indie scene. Youth and Young Manhood is still one of my favorite albums ever. And they were raw, and it was awesome, and it was amazing. And in 2009, they're just like, fuck, life's hard. Let's turn into Train. And it just became adult contemporary bullshit. And it represents everything that's wrong with pop music to me. Like, the negative reputation pop music gets that it admittedly, according to our list, undeserving of, because it can have some amazing knee-slapping hits uh, that are just solid musicianship. Uh, Use Somebody by the Kings of Leon is is not one of those. Uh, the Somebody they're using is you to sell out as hard as anyone has ever sold out for what is utterly shit music and a 
objective downgrade to the way they used to play music. Can I just tell you something that I have never been more amused listening to you talk about taste than while wearing a cutoff t-shirt and a Bass Pro Trucker hat <laughs> drinking a Natty Light. Hey, just because so, I got in the character. So so I hear what you're saying. Some people commit right to the bit. I hear what you're saying, Joe Dirt. I really do. Uh, but I, I choose to discredit. Alternatively, I think I've had a, an actually good selection for my dishonorable mention. <laughs> Anything by the Black Eyed Peas. Like, name a song the Black Eyed Peas have done from 2000 to 2009, or frankly, after 2009. I don't know if they made music before 2000, but lump that shit in there, too. If it's got Fergie and the rest of the Black Eyed Peas on it, I don't want anything to do with that shit. It is the lowest of low, the bassest of bass pop music, and I've never liked one of their songs. Look, I'm going to disagree with you about what I said about Kings of Leon, but if you expect me to like retroactively, reactionarily say, no, the Black Eyed Peas are great, yeah, get in there. You've made you've made a good tactical choice because I, I will never do that. No, you won't. Um, I won't stoop to that level. You've got two like, ears and yeah, a heart. Yeah. yeah, no, we're good here. Uh, so yes, you're wrong about Kings of Leon, but Black Eyed Peas are off. The, the let's get it started. I don't, them, I don't And then the get retarded is the non-radio version. I hate every part of all them. all of yeah. the black eyed. It's it's not a catalog as much as it is just like one very small shit book that I've heard over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think every time they're on, I go, oh, okay, people, someone listens to this somewhere, so good for them. What's your honorable mention? My honorable mention because it didn't quite make it. Because if you're talking about here's the thing, Matt, if you're talking about 2000s pop music, you're really talking about the soundtrack of my life. That's right. That's right. So. All these, all of these are going to be deeply ingrained right. in like my development as a human. Yep. And so, um, a pop song I can recognize as wonderful and uh, a pinnacle of the art form, but sadly doesn't resonate for me because of where I was in my life when it came out in 2009, right. is Beyonce's All the Single Ladies. Absolutely. Which I can absolutely recognize as a fantastic song. Jesus. But not being a single lady... And uh, being a little too late in my development to have that level of pop song ingrained in me, I recognize it for his musicianship, but it, it doesn't really resonate with me in terms of, like, I have deep memories attached to it. What I like about single ladies... It's no fault of Beyonce. Though. No, it's not. What I like about single ladies is all the single ladies, excuse me, the, <laughs> the, the accurate title track, is that it's one of the few songs, not unlike Thriller, which we discussed earlier, that none of us know all of the dance moves to, but every time it's on anywhere, <laughs> someone is putting their hand up for, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. Yeah. And holding their ring finger by their thumb. And I appreciate music that does that to not just some of but all of the community yes okay so for me honorable mention and and to be clear this could have made it in the top three and i wouldn't have been wrong but it's at the cutting edge of the 2000s it is 2000 and in fact so whereas you've gone the long i've gone the short here on the mm -hmm. timeline it's bye 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 by nsync deeply surprised it's not in your top three well okay so first it's not all right clearly it's 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 fourth as it were given the honorable mention title if i didn't put a song by nsync on here and and after my wife hopefully listened to this episode, which I don't think is going to happen, if I'm being totally honest, I would be divorced. <laughs> so I had to put something by NSYNC on here, and... You're I, legally required to listen to I'm legal, legally obligated. <laughs> I mean, it's a prenuptial, I mean... It, I took a vow. It, yeah. No, right. <laughs> literally took a vow to put Bye 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 on a list at some point about great pop music. Brandy's vows were oddly specific. They were. They even they mentioned, mentioned podcasts in the future. Sh sh no bullshit. She said that she would read Kenneth Burke for me. <laughs> and here we are, I don't know how many years later, almost five, six, and she's not read any Kenneth Burke. So if any of you ever meet her, 
put some screws to her on that one. Okay? It's, it's some bullshit. Okay. So we just get to play this episode for your th- uh, uh, That's couples' right. relationship. That's right. Yeah, for our counselor. Yeah, yeah. Right. Alternatively, here I am listening. Bye, bye, bye. As one somewhere of the- in the future, the spit is pointing his hands at a speaker. Yeah. Yeah. See. Yeah. She's also never read my dissertation, but it's not a sore spot. You fucks. Okay. Uh, bye, 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 bye. NSYNC is number four for me. What's on your actual top three list? Okay, my actual top three list. Uh, it's developed with me as a man. Um, number three, Hot in Here by Nelly. Can do every word of that song. Every fucking word of that <laughs> and, song. Well, you should. Absolutely. So I was raised within a small planes flight of St. Louis, and therefore I lived in a high school in which everyone claimed to have known Nelly, because mm-hmm. he was a rapper from St. Louis, and we were all so desperate for any touch of fame that everyone I knew... And everyone they knew had at one point seen Nelly somewhere as if he were some sort of mythical creature. Yep. Um, so that that sort of like full court cultural push of like everyone I know listening to Nelly and simultaneously have had some like where were you when you saw Nelly's story for me in high school just sort of um, opened up to my mind. The idea of pop music and what it truly was sure. as this shared cultural experience. It's a great choice. Um, and simultaneously, uh, it was all I listened to for about two years in the football field house. Yeah. Um, it taught me what racism was because all of the <laughs> Nazis on my football team would still bump it and dance to it. I'm like, you know, you right. know. He's, you know he's black, right? Right, yeah. Guy? Racist, from, from the Lou and he's proud. I know you got 1488 tattooed on your neck with an iron ingle, but... And it's a... Uh, don't get me wrong. It's a jammer of a song, but you know... you. You are aware. You've seen the video, right? He's a real jammer. um, So it taught me how stupid racism was um, with a object lesson thrown at my eyes and ears every single day. So it was developmental for me. Also, it's a great fucking song. It's fucking great. If it gets hot in here, tell me you're not dancing. That's right. You're a liar. That's right. Look, there are very few albums that I've purchased twice. (laughs) Caleb's going to spit his natty light up, having heard that. No, no bullshit. Brand news, Deja and Tondu. Weezer Blue, <laughs> Nelly's Nellyville are albums that I have purchased twice because I lost or corrupted the previous version. Oh my god. And that is not so subtly because of Hot and Her and Air Force Ones. So I'm in with you on this, man. This was a great choice. It's not on my list, and I'm glad it's not on my list because we could tell so many great stories, but it's not bad. Number three on my list. So the first thing to actually make the cut It Wasn't Me by Shaggy. And Ricardo Rick Rock Ducent. This, I, I've seen your list. Yeah. This is where we separate. I hate that song. Yeah, look, we, we all make it. mistakes, man. Okay. <sighs> so let me tell you something about It Wasn't Me. Uh, I am going to the Park Hill South Speech and Debate Tournament. I am in the back of a school, Blue Springs High School, school Blue Springs School District school bus, sitting around with some of my super cool debate colleagues. <laughs> And this song, in the 30 or 40 minute drive between Blue Springs, Missouri and Park Hill, Missouri, plays like four times because it's just come out and everyone fucking loves it. And so this song and the girl, the, the young woman sitting next to me, who I really like, really good, really good friend of mine, was wearing Victoria's Secret Love Spell. This song is intimately linked to my olfactory senses. So when It Wasn't Me plays... I remember debate. It smells like Shaggy in here. <laughs> I remember <laughs> I remember Victoria's Secret Love Spell. And I remember going, well, this is a fun night. 
Uh, and not to mention that I can't think of a song that was played more for a, for a short period of time than It Wasn't Me by Shaggy. No, I also, know. Also, that, I was there. that song should not be attributed to Shaggy. It should absolutely be attributed to Ricardo Rick Rock Ducent. Shaggy just says It Wasn't Me in between the great story this Forever. man is telling about having committed Endlessly. infidelity. He might still be doing it now. That's right. That's right. Uh, what's number two on your list? Oh, God, that song's terrible. Um, number two for me is uh, 2003's Hey Ya. Absolutely. By Outkast. Yes. Um, so, The Love Below Speaker Box. Unbelievable. One of my all-time favorite albums ever. Um, utterly amazing. And if Outkast is going to go out, go out with that split Go Outkast with that one. God, so good. Um, front to back, phenomenal. So, 2003. I'm a freshman in college. Every day when I go eat, the Hey Ya video is blaring from the college TV station pretty much on repeat for every meal I've ever had. So, like, I'm having one of the most formative experiences in my adult life. Like, right. I'm finally away from home for the first time in my life. I'm learning things I never thought possible. Yep. That kind of stuff. And, you know, um, at, when I when I do the things that are sort of the one thing I can sort of relate to to my old life in Jeff County with all of the crazy football racists listening to Nelly, when I'm doing the one thing I sort of relate to is, like, human activity, I have to eat aside from doing all these fantastic things I never imagined I'd be able to do in this place I never imagined existing, Hey Ya is there. Just the soundtrack of it existing forever. To the point where, like, when when he got sort of tired of it, I'm like, yeah, you're probably, you're yep. probably right. Yep. And I'd gotten into Outkast in um, 2000 with, I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Sorry, Miss Jackson. Because yep. that almost made the list. It absolutely did. Uh, it's just not technically listed as a pop song like Hey Ya is. So yep. that's yep. the only reason it's not Sure, got to play by the rules. But I had the ability to get more outcasts in college than I never had in back in you know my hometown. Right. And so like I start getting into like Return of the Gangster and AT Aliens and like all of the old stuff, Dungeon Family stuff, and it's just like amazing. And it starts me like on hip hop, which I wasn't really allowed to listen to in the town I was from, with the exception of Nelly. Um, obviously, so yeah, it's just a soundtrack to my life. Hey, uh, always has a special place in my heart. It's it to this day when it comes on, it doesn't. It, it puts a smile on my face. And you want to talk about songs where people know some of the dance moves. Right. Every one of you can shake it like a Polaroid picture. That's right. And and almost all of us know almost all of the words. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, we, we'll all mumble about the same bit. <laughs> but for the most part, we will know all of Hey Ya together. Yes. Number two on my list, um, and our second entry in this conversation from one Beyonce Knowles. But this one is with her former castmates. Say My Name by Destiny's Child. It's a solid pick. That, I, I have no disagreement on this one. I don't have a good story about this. I can't tell you what I was doing and where I was when I first heard it. But I'll tell you this. If I'm in a public location and I've had a few drinks and Say My Name comes on, I will be the sassiest motherfucker you have ever met <laughs> for two, two and a half minutes. I've seen it. It's yeah. I'll move my haps, hips. I will wag my finger. They're haps when you do it. They though. are, though, because I move them real well. <laughs> I will wag my finger at you and don't try to talk to me <laughs> or say my name, okay? Uh, of There are two CDs that I continue to have in my car. One is Silverstein's Discovering the Waterfront, and the other is the 20th Century Masters Collection for Destiny's Child. <laughs> quite, quite the range there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm a Renaissance man, Ross. I was complimenting. You. And say my name yeah. is something that I will listen to. Actually, at my fucking funeral, 
Someone play that. Oh, okay? God, please. That's my request. Yeah. Uh, what's number one on your list? Um, it is uh, Sexy Back, Justin Timberlake, yeah. 2006. Yep. So uh, we started my college journey in 2003. Uh-huh. Um, I'm getting into new everything. File sharing's a thing. Uh, it's the golden days of piracy. Um, I am stealing music from literally everyone I know and people I don't know. I'm getting into some weird, weird shit, like some out there, out there shit, like metal machine music, like some fucked up concept albums. And I'm getting music snobby. I'm sure. getting yeah. music snobby. Yeah, it's going to happen. Which I carry someday. JT brought me back. That's right. It's a popular song, and it's a damn good song. It's the Iowa of music. Yeah, it's, it's the heartland. Yeah, it's it's good. It's it's just solid, good music, and it's uniformly loved by all. And it also has an outsized uh, uh, impact on the presidential primaries. It really like Iowa. Really yeah. does. That's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, and that was that was off his uh, Timbaland produced that album. If it's I a fantastic remember, album. If I remember correctly. And he brought me down. He brought me down to earth. Absolutely, because that's the same time. Like that's coming out the same time he's going on SNL. Yep. That's coming out the same, like the, the Jimmy Fallon thing. Yeah, the yep. Timberlake Assance. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, he's he's arriving on the scene, but it's it's sort of like, you know, teaching me to not be so stuck up. That's it's right. Me, it's bringing me back down to earth. Remember, sometimes music is just about making you feel good and having you move your haps. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Also, haps. worth noting that we've now had two entries from Beyonce Knowles and her group and Justin Timberlake and his group, and I think that's perfect. I think that is a perfect summary of what the 2000s was. It was 2000s pop music in particular. It was about groups learning to be other people and make great music while doing it. Mm-hmm. Hashtag philosophy. All okay, right. number one on my list. And look, this was real hard. I struggled. I struggled with this people because for two reasons. One, I'm not sure it's her greatest song. And two, I struggled with do I want to be known as the guy on this podcast that constantly talks about Britney Spears and or sings her songs. You're not going to leave her alone. I'm not going to leave her alone. He's not leaving Brittany alone. I'm going to lean into it, and I'm going to say, yes, I do want to be that guy, and I will wear that badge. Specifically, if any of you would make me a badge, I would wear it, because I think the single greatest pop song of the 2000s is Toxic by Britney Spears. I'm not going to disagree. If it's on, I'm dancing. If it's I'm on, probably I'm probably doing the chair dance from the video. There it is. And you don't want to see it, and I don't want to care. Not in, not in that not in that garb you've no. got on. Absolutely, mm-hmm. do I not? Mm-mm-mm-mm. But I'll tell you this: um, if you if you want to get a whole room of people just feeling good about themselves, you play Toxic. Mm-hmm. It's one of the five or six songs that when I don't know what to play play at the jukebox, but I know I'm going to play something. It's one of the five or six that I know I'm going to play. Yeah, yeah, without question. And and to this day, I'm not sure that it's better than Hit Me Baby One More Time. I'm not sure. But I know that I. But I know that that lack of certainty means that it might be, and that's fucking saying something. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Look, I really enjoyed this question. I love. And that we've we, gone long. We've gone long. Yeah. We've gone long because because you asked us what what is to me. We've talked about twenty times six, a, <laughs> nearly a hundred and twenty topics now. <laughs> to me, this one may be the most important. You know what I mean? <laughs> because this gets at the essence of who I am and what I want to do. I want to fucking talk about and listen to and dance to pop music. I would while like drinking. to request to listeners in the future when they suggest topics. Do not abuse the uh, sort of 
mimetic hack you have on Spencer Absolutely by suggesting talking about pop music, or else that's just going to be what this entire podcast Absolutely is. abuse it. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Matt from Seattle, for suggesting this. It was an absolute pleasure discussing it. I'm sorry that Caleb didn't generate a better list, but I hope that I have done exactly what you were looking for. And on that note, Caleb is done with this 25-ounce Natty Light and is on to the next beer we'll see in just a few seconds. Caleb, 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 what are you drinking? All right, um, I'm about to drink a Michelob Ultra for the first time in maybe a decade. I do want to say there was a period of my life where I would only drink Michelob Ultra when I was transitioning from, you know, hardy, young sportsman into the man you see today. Uh, and I was in denial as to what I was going to become. Um, I, I but a, it's low carb, and that advertising worked on me. I want to. So. I want to add a uh, an asterisk too to what you've said. You're about to drink a 25 ounce Michelob Ultra. See, we shop for these beers at a literal gas station, and the only way you can buy one offs is if you buy quote unquote the big ones. Yeah. So here we are, and Caleb. Here we are. Big ones years years later. Tell me, where does that fall on our rating system? That's a two. Oh, it's a um, conga line. Yeah, it's not. It's not going to get better with mass. You know what's funny, too, um, is that, yeah. that that is an adequate description of the Mick Ultra. It's like you do it because everybody else is doing it, but you're not happy about it. Yeah, yeah. everyone else is going to drink to excess. You want to keep your calories down, though. That's right. So you got a Mick Ultra. Amen. Even because you don't understand how f- nutrition works like I didn't back in the day. Right, so. because you got to drink more of them to get drunk, and so you end up drinking the same amount, if not... Well, we, we can get into the science of it later, obviously. So it's mildly terrible. Right. At this point, we're not really worried about the calories of beer, yeah. is what I am saying. <laughs> obviously. Right. We also we also eat entire bags of pretzels and cookies while while we're filming these things. I did have a Mexican dish made of chicken, rice, and cheese before we came over here. That's right. So. That's right. It's substance, people. Yeah, like I said, before I transitioned to what I was, what are we going to talk about in Mix 6 today? We are on ask mixed six which is of course an opportunity for you to ask us anything and some of those things if i'm being honest are a little bit weird and we like that we like that some of those things are a little bit more built for this kind of medium though and andy angie h and ben w who i think have asked us some pretty good questions in the past as well have have landed on a real humdinger here so angie h and ben w ask do you think that the way friendships are often developed and maintained through things like social media and the internet generally is changing the inherent concept of what being a friend means and that's fucking deep yes that is subterranean Mm -hmm. it's so deep and i'm gonna let you start because i'm not sure yet and i want to hear what you have to say and then i'm going to determine whether or not i think that you are right and based on our friendship i'm going to make an assessment of you and my answer to the question my answer is yes. Okay. But it's not supplementary. Ooh, yeah. I think it has changed what it means to be a friend, but I think it's added to friendship's duties. I don't think it has mm. replaced mm-hmm. friendship's duties. So, for instance, I have uh, a number of close friends here in Springfield who are very supportive. They support me in my times of need. They are there when I want to have fun. They're not overly judgmental. All the things you would want of a friendship 
typically. I feel like I feel like you just said all that as a slight to me, and I feel what? like what? that's very cold, Caleb. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like I also have many friends on the internet that I've made through you know my association with RPPPR and producer Ross, um, and those uh, people have become really hugely supportive friends of me. And I'm not just talking about crowdfunding, but I might as well because we're on Patreon. And man, that's a good friendship bond. If you're like supporting my art with money, like that's cool. But that's not something required. Like, but when I post, if you engage with it, if you like it, if you do things like that, if we have this sort of meaningful digital relationship exchange, which is not the sort of pressure of, you know, let's sit on a landline with a curly cute cord and talk for two hours and make shitty small talk. But like this idea that amongst my digital, you know, prowling grounds, these sites I go to every day, I want to continually engage with you, even if it's a dumb meme, sure. even if it's a like, even if it's a silly comment, like that sort of continual, hey, you've did this thing. I'm glad you did it. I am here as well. I am distant and far away, but you're still there. And that still happens with, you know, in-person friendships, the more real old school friendships we might be deviating. From. Sure. So I don't see it as being replaced. I don't. I don't imagine there are many friendships, or I can't even imagine uh, remember any friendships in the pre-digital native era era um, that didn't include the same things that my friendships include now. Yeah. But I also feel like there's this additional component to it in the modern. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. I actually think that for what it's worth, I won't unfriend you for those comments. I think that's pretty spot on. For for me, two things stand out here. So one is, I think that it does change the nature of what a friend being a friend means Mm -hmm. but i don't think that that's objectively true i think it's dependent on the person and two i think that it doesn't so much change what being a friend means as it does change the manner in which you acquire friends let me take those two things in kind right so so thing number one is i think that there is is a difference now in what it means to be a friend based on the person so i do know that i have some friends who will post things on Facebook, tweet things, put pictures on Instagram, who evaluate the engagement that I have with those things on social media as a litmus test for where are we in our friendship. And that can be too much. And it can be too much. That can go too excessive. It can be too much. Absolutely. Alternatively, as a good friend, I need to recognize that that's true. And so there are times when I see things on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, other social media that I don't respond to, I don't like, I don't favorite, I don't retweet, because I don't... I don't find them inherently interesting or worth retweeting or liking, et cetera, or harding, whatever it is on fucking Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, but be- just because I don't find them inherently or uniquely interesting or reflective of my interests doesn't mean that it doesn't mean something to that other person. So there are some people that for them, that type of interaction does meaningfully signal that we are friends. And so I've learned to kind of like moderate some of my social media behavior. And what I don't want to do is I don't want I don't want to sound like, nor do I want people to think that that is bullshit, that that is some negative, um, you know, boomer criticism of social media and the digital age. For me, that's just the nature of evolution and adaptation, that now we have a new form of interaction that is not replaced, but is layered on top of. It's complementary or supplementary to our other forms of interaction. Mm -hmm. And as a friend, I can either choose to acknowledge and respect that, or I cannot. But I'm making that decision of my own, and so I think that's totally fine. So yes, I do think that in that way it's changed the nature of what it means to be a friend in some instances, but certainly not all instances. Yeah, so I really thought hard about this because I thought it was a deeply interesting question. So 
my line for this, I have I have instances. So we recently had people who came into town, right? Um, and one of the friends who came into town said, I, I, how's the mix six going? I'm not caught up. I've only listened to a couple episodes. Right. I also left town to be a friend that lives very far away that yeah. I've had forever. He's like, how's the mix six going? I haven't caught up. I, I don't listen a lot. Or I can't support the Patreon anymore or something like that. Right. I do not judge people based on that. They're nope. still good friends. This yep. in no way hurts the friendship. Yep. However, I have had friends come into town and was like, oh, I didn't know you wrote RPGs. Right. Oh, I didn't know you podcasted at all. Yeah. And here's the thing. I don't require you to back me. I don't require you to even listen to it. But, like, it's not like I'm hiding this research. Yep. Like, there's multiple social media platforms. That just shows to me you haven't investigated me in years right are like thought even considered me in passing yep so like that goes beyond like in our world of instant connection of instant look up of luck uh research yep that goes beyond like you know circumstances separated us by distance something like that i haven't even crossed your mind you're in town for something else and you found a room you could stay at yeah no i totally agree alternatively online I have people that I haven't talked to in years that I run a Kickstarter who suddenly really want to get back together and talk right. about Kickstarter sure. and how they want to do their Kickstarter shit. I'm like, you don't give a fuck about me. Right. I saw a digital change in my appearance. You've never existed in my life before then for decades, and now you want to cash in. Right. So I really think it's both. If yep. you, you need both sides of the equation. like You need to like know I have this digital presence. You don't have to engage with it at all. You need to be aware of it because you're aware of me as a person. Yep. Or you need to be aware of me as a person and then don't come at me That's right. solely from a digital perspective. That's right. I think you know being a good friend is about a meaningful uh, balance of give and take. Mm-hmm. And I think that social media has, has added another channel in which get, give and take can happen. Right? Yes. There is the other bit there, though, that I mentioned earlier, which is the acquisition of friends and how social media has changed that. I don't, I don't think that in some ways it's changed the nature of what it means to be a friend, but rather I think it does change how you come to friends. And, and how you interact with them. But I still think that meaningful give and take is kind of the core of this. Mm-hmm. So what I'm thinking of here are people like Andrew Baswell, Jeb Dale, uh, Noah Carden, yeah. right? Um, and, and even this weekend at the cage match, I was fortunate, fortunate enough to meet Thad uh, and, and, and Kara. People who I would have not met but for this very social mediated thing that we've been doing. Yeah. And I'm really blessed to have met. I mean, good people mm-hmm. that, that I really feel fortunate for having come across. Yeah. A- and people that I'm willing to give of my time, energy, effort, because I want to be friends with them and I want them to be friends with me. And so I think, if anything, in terms of acquisition and the, the, the way friendships are developed and the way friends interact... I think that social media has expanded not only how I meet people, but how, how I think about meeting people. Uh, for a while, I was very certain that I had a core of friends, and then I had a bunch of people that I knew and was friendly with, and that's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that line has become grayer or more blurry to me because of social media, and I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay with kind of living in that more ambiguous space because it gives me more opportunity to figure out if I do or don't want to invest in you or anyone as a friend, and that's really cool. Um, I think it's actually probably made me a better person in some weird way. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, I really do like that question. I, you know, I made the comment at the beginning of the segment that I hadn't really thought about it in as much as I don't know. I, 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 I really, I guess I have thought about it, but I suppose in some ways I don't think about it because it's just kind of become a part of my standard vocabulary for, for it was a slow transition. Yeah, it really yeah. was. It really was. It, 
for yeah. people of our generation. It's especially. been, uh, yeah, a thousand paper cuts, right, in yeah. some weird way uh, to kind of get me to this point, and, and I really like it. But I do love the question because it's made me think about it. And on that note, we're going to grab another beer. We're going to be back in just a second. Spencer, what are you drinking? I am drinking what is arguably... And I say that because I am open to an argument here. The standard bearer for gas station beers. I'm drinking a Bud Light out of an aluminum bottle, nonetheless. Mm, wow. So, class. Listen, I don't love Bud Light. I had a bad experience with a keg of Bud Light at one point. And to be fair, it was the day after the keg was tapped, which is probably why the Bud Light tasted like it did. Having said that, Bud Light for me has to be a YMCA. It's the metric by which you evaluate all other gas station beers. Is it better than or worse than a YMCA? Yeah. And so it's a three. It's a three. It's how I feel about it. And I'm going to drink this thing begrudgingly because I don't, I don't go around looking for Bud Lights to drink. But if you told me that I got to drink 10 of these things today, I'd drink 11 is how I feel. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and while I drink, while I drink the, the lowest common denominator of gas station beers we get to talk about what is quickly becoming my new favorite segment in everything that we do <laughs> and your new favorite segment with the number one pick this week that's absolutely right it was the number one pick um for our floating segment vote caleb what are we talking about uh in the mixed six draft yes. in which we draft imaginary things for things that are not normally drafted that's right um we are going to draft a band of fictional musicians god i'm so excited Yes. I'm so excited. So but who goes first? Okay. This is competitive. So uh, so, so we can steal picks. Here here are the rules. We can steal picks, and it had to be at least a three-piece or more of mm-hmm. characters that we were drafting. Now, given that I just have more characters, I think it would make sense for me to go first, because I've drafted a five-piece. No, no, not doing that. No. Okay. All right. It's, it's one, two, three, rep, rape up, rock, paper, scissors. Sorry. Okay. Wait, so is it one, two, three, one, two, shoot? three, throw. One, two, three, throw. Okay. One, two, three, throw. Fuck. One, two, three, throw. Fuck. Yes. God damn it. First okay. pick. Caleb went scissors. Yes. I went paper. I thought he was going to go I'm rock. I'm a part, partial witness. I can verify that. Uh, Caleb did, in fact, win. I looked, I looked at scissors him. Scissors over paper. And I thought, a man drinking a Mick Ultra with a cutoff Slaughterhouse 5 t-shirt and a Bass Pro trucker hat is going to go rock next. I went scissors twice because I used it to cut off my sleeves today. Okay. okay. Um, so yeah. is, there's also an episode of JoJo that had the same plot. Okay, okay damn it, rock. <laughs> there's also a whole Sylvester Stallone You do Stallone your fucking movie. JoJo references on your own show, That's right. Ross. That's right. Special shout out to Noah. God damn He'll it. appreciate it. See you on All RPPR. Right. Um, so, number one pick. Yep. Diva Pava Laguna from the fifth, the fifth element, element on vocals. Jesus. Can sing in a way that the human voice cannot even approach. She's the lead. She's also nine foot tall and she's blue. Wow. Diva Pava Laguna. Wow. Okay, so if, I want to say two things. One is about your decision and the other... Total vocal range. More generically is about what has happened here. So a peek behind the curtains, folks. There, there, There is no man there. Um, Caleb and I produce a Google Doc of show notes. Uh, for each episode. And when I opened the show notes this morning to go over things, Caleb had entered his draft choices and he redacted them. <laughs> he highlighted them in black and literally wrote Caleb's list and then in parentheses, in all capitals, no peeking. So we have no idea what's happening. It's a here. draft. It's competitive. I didn't know if I was going to steal it. Diva Pavel Laguna is just like... The no-brainer number one for me. Yeah, okay, fine. Good for you. The second thing I want to say about your first choice is, 
That's a really good force choice. <laughs> okay. But let me suggest this. You, sir, did not start with the theme. I, sir, did. My goal here in the mixed six draft <laughs> is to build the ultimate boy band. And I'm unredacting my answers as we go, which is why Kayla was laughing. Is to build the ultimate boy band. And so in building the ultimate boy band, and, and, and let me be clear before I show you my answer here. Boy bands are full of archetypes, right? Okay. There's the hot, douchey lead singer jock. There's the bad boy. There's the bad boy. Yeah. There's the mysterious, tortured kid. There's the guy who, like, obviously writes poetry in his free time. And then there's the, oh, yeah, that guy, right? The guy that, like, your one girl friend in middle school was a the fan Joey of. The Joey Yeah, right. He it, took that arc. She, he ascended. She or he is a fan of them because it makes them different, right? They're yeah, like, oh, yeah. no, no, I love Howie from the Backstreet Boys, right? <laughs> so what I've tried to do here is build the ultimate boy band. So my first decision, my first choice for the ultimate boy band in the mixed six draft of fictional characters, as I unhighlight it, so I too can remember what I've chosen here, is Johnny Utah from Point Break. <laughs> How is he? A- <laughs> Look at the man! Can he sing? Of course he can fucking sing. Are you kidding me? So you get up there, right? You're an audience member, and out walks Johnny Utah, who's got slightly long bangs. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, is the boy band a cover for bank robbers, and is he infiltrating them for the FBI? Because then I'm entirely behind it. What if I told you? You have me in so hard. What if I told you that the conceit of my boy band was actually more devious than that, but you will learn about it on my second pick? All right, all right, all right. So Johnny Utah, right? He comes out. This is the guy that's most likely to wear a vest without a shirt on stage just to show off what he's got going underneath that vest. Fair enough. And you can't tell me that I'm wrong about this. No. So, can he sing? Mm, don't give a fuck. Okay? Could any of the Backstreet <laughs> Boys sing? Mm, don't give a fuck. Also never. Yeah. Right. Okay? But auto-tune and a nice vest is going to make him go a long way. Who's number two on your list? God, I just want boy band bank robbers. Like, our next campaign of anything is a boy band bank robber. Game. Obviously. Um, all right. I want an eclectic group. That can do like some crazy out there Mars Volta shit. Sure. Diva Pavel Lagoon is in there. I'm also picking Johnny from The Devil Went Down to Georgia. He literally beat Jesus. the devil in a fiddle competition. Good God, man. That is some good ass fiddle playing. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. I'm just saying. That's if, pretty good. If sheer musicianship, yep. he can beat Satan. Yeah. All right. I'm just saying. They could do some crazy Alabama Shakes covers. It's it's like, oh, oh, the light bringer? Well, right. he's pretty good. But right. have you met Johnny? He's from Georgia. That's what I want in my band. It's going to get hard to get insurance for the band, though. I mean, that, that fiddle, that boy band's going to rob it. Like. That's right. That's right. Watch it. The boy band's going to go to heist for the fiddle bit of gold. Gird your loins. All right. So in building the perfect boy band, and Caleb has deduced that I, too, am trying to set a, a, a nefarious conceit to this whole thing. Number two for me in my boy band repertoire of fictional characters is the bad boy, John Wick. From... <laughs> John Wick. And are they John. all Keanu Reeves? I don't know. <laughs> Fuck you. There are three more left. We'll have to see what happens here. We'll have to see. You didn't set too many parameters. You just said boy band of fictional characters. And as we know, whereas. <laughs> okay, all right. I could maybe give you the Johnny Utah could sing. John Wick has never sang a note in his life. You're going to say that to John Wick's face? No. Okay. I'm going to flee. Exactly. But I'm also probably okay because I'm not a Russian mobster. Yeah, you'd think that. <laughs> 
No, he's he he does percussion. That's right. Yeah, the bad boy. The bad boy rarely sings. Right, he takes some solos, but he's in the background. Background. I mean, he can just, dance probably. That's right. So so far, to be clear, I've got the hot jock, potentially douchey lead singer Johnny Utah, and the bad boy John Wick. Also true to band. If Johnny Utah's trying to take down a heist game run by John Wick, he's gonna die. But if John Wick's on his fucking team, also true to the boy band form. I've now put two people on the team named John or Johnny. There's going to be drama. So I have already set the stage for the inevitable breakup where they take solo it's not careers. It's going to be drama. He's mm. going to break every bone in his body before shooting him in the head. Okay. Okay. I'm just saying that if Johnny Utah shoots at him, it's going to be Johnny difficult. Utah almost got taken out by a lawnmower, almost. to be clear. Almost. Almost got taken out. He was saved by Gary Busey. Right. That is not going to take down John Wick. I'm just saying. To be fair, is there anything crazier than having been saved by Gary Busey? <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Okay. Who's next on your list? All right. My next on the list, because uh, we need some sort of melody in this. Right. Billy Crudup or Russell from Almost Famous, the guitarist of Stillwater. That makes sense. So, like, it's literally meant to be a stand-in for Led Zeppelin slash Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And you literally make this uh, musician that is meant to personify all of their talent and all of their hubris and shittiness. Uh, you've got Billy Crudup. Yep. but. Who is Billy going to disagree with and have his normal sort of Faustian pack where he's so good at the guitar, but he can't get along with it? Is he going to fight with an alien nine-foot-tall creature Mm -hmm. that has achieved Mm -hmm. Zen? Or is he going to fight with a crazy hick that has literally beat the devil? He has no one to battle with. He's just going to be showboating and playing some great licks. You've you've laid down the the setting for a real barn burner here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So far, I've given you the lead singer type, the the, the really hot guy that that everyone will soon after, and Mm -hmm. the bad boy. So now let me give you the mysterious, tortured character in the boy band. It's Neo from The Matrix. (laughs) That's absolutely right it is. I mean, think about this guy, right? We meet Neo when he is both stuck as a hacker trying to live, uh, you know, an inauspicious life, just handing off fucking um, mini discs to sketchy folks in the dark, right? And go to weird fucking clubs where people know him. He has a very high-collared shirt. And then he's also got a very high-collared shirt where he tries to be the everyday man who works in a fucking cubicle. Can you think of someone who better embodies the struggle of the the boy band tortured gentleman, right? I still fight your John Wick pick, but Neo could at least download the ability to sing into his brain. That's right. He's got to play the guitar as well. Absolutely, he plays the guitar, (laughs) right? Because he's into computers, people. Okay? So, so far, I've satisfied three of the five boy band archetypes, okay? And I'm building a real theme here. So what have you ended on? I've ended on, uh, you need a rhythm section for this kind of thing. But... You don't need that much of a rhythm section. I don't think you need a bass. I don't think you need keyboards. When you have Pava up there, who's the ability to do all notes and makes chords with her voice. Right. So uh, you do need some some beats just to keep people moving. Sure. So I'm going to pick, uh, for my final member of this killer band, Jesus DJ Qualst, the skinny, the new scarecrow-like guy. new guy from Hustle and Flow, the guy who does the beats for Skinny Black uh, on Hustle and Flow, because you want to talk about pop songs. Absolutely. Hustle and Flow soundtrack. 
All day. Uh, yeah, all day. All day. All day. So you're going to have a killer rhythm section. He's going to be he's going to be from the streets. He's not going to be a diva about anything, which is good. You need some down to earth when yep. one person's name is actually diva. Yep. And uh, yeah, I feel like I have a great four piece. No, act that, right there. You you've probably put together a Grammy winner. I've put together a billion dollar machine. Oh my god, is how I feel about this because now that I've given you the mysterious, I was always chasing art and not money. You. Virgin Records monster. Yeah, absolutely. Now that I've given you the mysterious tortured boy, the bad boy, and the lead singer boy, I give you the romantic writes poetry and his free time boy, Paul Sutton from A Walk in the Clouds. Oh, fuck you. (laughs) Everyone, get to the comments now. Bash your keyboards telling how badly Spencer has lost this. Nope, nope, nope. And you know what? I'm not done because there's yet a fifth archetype I have yet to satisfy. And that's the guy that everyone's like, oh, yeah, he was also in the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. I'm thinking of Chris Kirkpatrick or Howie or Kevin here from the Backstreet Boys. The girl in middle school is like, I'm really into that guy and no one else is into that guy. But now she's different. Okay, and that guy is obviously played by arguably the greatest of all of Keanu Reeves characters. Ted Theodore Logan. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, an actual musician. Yeah, like. that's he right. objectively cannot sing. Well, okay. They, would... they demonstrate through multiple times in the series that he cannot sing. Well... I'll tell you what he can do. He can be the f- fifth men- member of a pretty balling boy band. I mean, band. granted, he did start a band that literally caused utopia on the earth for all time. Absolutely. But that was with Bill S. Preston. Oh, God. What if this is like to lure him away from Wild Stallions is like part of some crime syndicate's plot? <laughs> and that's why John Wick and Amen. John Utah are in it. Amen. Well, they do want the ability to <laughs> steal from time. Yeah, exactly. Which you would get for that. Now I'm going to put both of you on the clock. I have developed for you a boy band built of five Keanu Reeves characters. <laughs> what is the name of that boy band? God damn it. Uh, it's going to be a pun. I don't, I don't <laughs> it's going to be a pun. Just, just do it. Don't yeah. leave people in suspense. I'm really glad today that you got to meet Keanu Kids on the Block. Boom. End of segment. <laughs> the, the crowd roars. Producer Ross puts everyone, in, everyone, Mark, how badly I won. Puts, like, it, puts I in a sound so effect of just people cheering and rockets shooting. It, it'll sound like 4th of July or New Year's Eve. I need another beer. I'm taking my New York off. City. In the segment. And, in the segment and while Producer Caleb Ross. takes his headphones off, I just sit here. I wave my arms above my head as if I've won a gold... Caleb, what's that you're about to put in your mouth? I'm going to drink a uh, uh, Miller, a Miller Light, a Miller Light, and I want to thank you for taking the bullet here. I just God, Miller Light, silver bullet. It tastes no, that's coming up next. Miller Light tastes like a bowling alley to me. Like the film Big Lebowski looks like a Miller Light. Oh, hard one. Yeah, hard, hard one. Hard one. Absolutely, it it's is. a metal bottle which it doesn't need. It's the inside. It doesn't of need shoes. more metal. Plus a cigarette, absolutely. Also, I want to. I want to take. Do you ha- ever see one of those metal trough urinals? Mm. Mm-hmm. Tastes like a uh, like really finely ground urinal cake from the bottom of one of those. Vivid. And I know, I know that everyone's focusing on the piss sound, like this piss description of that. But really, well, you did say urine. There's also a chemical thing. Like it's yep. not a, like where it's just urine. Like that person would need to go to a doctor. Yep. There's also. This distinct formaldehyde yep. cigarette uh, filters too. Again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's I've a lot. It's a, there. it's, 
there's a lot of unnatural shit going on in here. Well, I hope you enjoy that. Mm. Also, want to take a half a second and let everyone know that during that last segment, I was celebrating and I had a hell of a celebration. And producer Ross did not tell me until much later that he cut most of it off. But know <laughs> that we all agreed that I won the mixed six draft. This is not true. And that in the future, if you'd like to support any one of us, just support me. So while Caleb drinks <laughs> arguably the worst of today's beers, we're on to binge binger. Um, and we've taken a modified suggestion from Levi. Levi had originally asked in Binge Binger, what's our favorite old show, like 80s or older? But because we typically take more time in a segment than just talking about one show, I've modified that. So, Caleb, we're going to be talking about our top three old shows. So, shows that are 80s or older. Yes. Okay? So old for the relative function of us. Absolutely. And again, uh, we started with an honorable mention, so we've done three and then a fourth, which violates the constraints of our own yeah. system, and IDGAF. Caleb, what's fourth or the honorable mention on your list? So for me, it's probably the oldest show on my list. You went way older than I did. You went like pre-I-was-born show. I did a very, very old show, but still something I could have watched on television, uh, newly in syndication at least. Yep. Uh, so mine is the Andy Griffith show. So I'm not a huge fan of the Andy Griffith show. It's a little bit so weird to lead in on this one and weird. But my mother watched it religiously, yeah. And I've seen every episode dozens of times. Really. And at that point, it is also you know pretty effective. Uh, you know the the scene uh, the the episode where he shoots the bird. And Andy has to, you know, tell his son what death is. And, like, it gets dark at points. And it's got some teeth to it. But it's just sort of, it's just like a moving Norman Rockwell painting. And it's every show sure. all the time. Right. Um, and also, my mom was really into Matlock, which uh, has not aged well. I was into fucking Matlock. I used to watch the shit out of Matlock. God, I could get down um, some Matlock. Yeah, I could get down some Matlock. But Andy Griffith was sort of a staple of my entire childhood. Yeah, for sure. So he at least gets an honorable mention on my old show list. I think that's totally fair. Honorable mention for me, and it's only honorable because I literally couldn't decide amongst the four that I put on this list. It was a toss-up. So this is the one that I guess lost some coin flips. I think you picked well. I think I did too. I'm going to be honest with you. Not unlike the mixed six draft, which we all agreed that I God won after the mics got turned off. Are you Fox off. News? What are you doing? So honorable mention on my list is the Bob Newhart show. So there were three iterations, I think, of Bob Newhart shows. But the Bob Newhart show, which I think ran from like 72 to 78 is to this day one of the most well-written, tightly written, Sneaky good funny comedy. shows in the history of television. If you are unfamiliar with Bob Newhart's cadence and humor, uh, I implore you to go find some on the YouTubes or any old television show. Also, I don't know find. anyone has been able to imitate it. Absolutely. It's like it's just all him. It, it, like he, it is, he did it, that's and right. then no one else did it after that. It is simultaneously bumbling to get to the point, but not because you didn't know the point, because you were so certain of the point, you couldn't figure out how to get there fast enough. It is a unique form of comedic brilliance and timing that I, I think you're absolutely right. We've not seen since Bob Newhart, and I hope we don't see it again. I mean, it is, it, it is a, a literal gift. So in terms of actual lists, then, your top three, what's third on your list? Uh, so for me, um, I have darker tastes, and my mom was really into murder mysteries. Um, so it was very difficult to get above the you know sort of uniform paste that is uh, Law and Order on our television. But the thing that did that for me was Robert McCall in the original Equalizer series. That's, yeah, that's a holy shit. Do I love that show? First off, 
the soundtrack for the theme is the hottest synthwave track of 2017, and it's been that way for decades. Um, also, well, Robert McCall, old, old-ass British man, just badassing his way through every episode, like enhanced interrogation, throwing bitches through windshields, shooting motherfuckers. Sure. Like, AT's just like, hey, we'll, I'll, we'll do this elaborate trap, yeah. and we'll shoot all around the guys because we can't show blood, and then everything will resolve itself, apparently, because we destroyed a bunch of property. Robert McCall will kill a motherfucker. Absolutely. Like, he will do what is necessary Doesn't to get the job done. Um, he's as close as I got to the Punisher for decades until I got Daredevil season two. Um, so the equalizer, man, if you haven't watched episode yet, go do it. Sure. Number three on my list is get smart. Um, I fucking love this show for so many reasons. Um, I'm first introduced to Don Adams who plays Max Maxwell smart via inspector gadget. The God, I'm watching Caleb drink Miller light and it really is. Yeah, he's not. He's trying to get through the whole thing. That right. he really, he there's a commitment to this bit here that is, is it, really, really astounding. Spen, Spencer, is this stoic or is it masochistic? It's masochistic. It okay. absolutely is. Is, right. is I think on all parts. If I'm being totally honest, yeah, and that would imply I'm enjoying it. Well, I'm not enjoying it. I am. So I guess the other end of that. <laughs> so it's sadistic. Yeah, then. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, well, that's fair. Anyways, I was first introduced to Don Adams uh, via Inspector Gadget as a really youngster. A real youngster. Uh, and then I kind of learned about Get Smart through Nick at Night, and I thought Get Smart was just brilliant. And Get Smart really helped me understand that comedy creates distance between the thing and how you can interpret the thing. Mm-hmm. So Maxwell Smart and Agent 99, who Barbara Feldon, the way they portray the the kind of... Well, you know, they're, they're early Did it versions. sort of ruin you for Bond, seeing the it, parody before Bond? It ruined... Well, I didn't see... I don't know that I saw it before Bond. It was probably contemporaneous to my exposure to Bond, but it ruined me for Austin Powers a little bit, which I think are oh, brilliant. Yeah. But I thought, okay, well, you're doing, you're doing a, kind of a more absurd British version of what's already been done, which yeah. is how do we mock the spy thing in a really this meaningful way. This is get smart, way. but not as good. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, uh, get smart was a really meaningful thing for me growing up, and I would say that in my childhood... There are a couple of television shows, many of which I'll list here, that make up the how I learned to be a television viewer and pop culture. And Get Smart is, you know, one of the, one of the most important. What's number two on your list? Uh, Columbo. Yeah, absolutely, it is. So Columbo didn't really register me. I was a kid when I watched it because mom watched nothing but mysteries, of course. And it's a little too slow yeah. for my kid. Brain. Sure, uh, it wasn't Murder She Wrote bad, but it was whoa, pretty whoa, slow. whoa. In terms of like destroying my kid brain, oh, okay. nothing happened. So you want to shit on Angela Lansbury? No, I did yeah. not. I did not do that. Um, so Columbo comes on, and eventually I see it, and I see episodes enough time that I realize like the basic stick of Columbo is like if you are truly smart, have everyone think you're stupid. That's right, and use that to destroy them. Don't act like the and smartest like, person in the room. Yeah, the sort of darkness of like portraying Columbo as this man who is a objective genius yep. who goes bumbling through life playing this character of himself in order to do justice uh, in this the most unassuming uh, unglorious way imaginable I'm like, ah, one more question man like always just like bumbling and just and yet always solving the case yeah uh it it taught me character could do other things and have different levels yeah i think that's the important takeaway from columbo so first off i would make i would make an argument that peter falk's portrayal of columbo is one of the five greatest 
one of the five greatest feats of acting in all of oh, all no. of all of television Fantastic. in the 20th century, Front right? To back, yeah. And what you've identified, I think, is at the core of Columbo, which is this constant tension between: is he playing a caricature of the guy who's not smart enough, not well kempt enough to be in the room, or is he the guy who's not well kempt enough, not not articulate enough, but is smart enough to be yeah, in the room? Yeah, because there's almost no scenes in Columbo in which he's like getting up. Are like getting ready for work or That's by right. himself. That's right. You only see Columbo as he is seen by the people yep. involved in the mystery. And yep. so, like, that show is utterly formulaic, like most mystery shows, but it just powers itself through through subtext yes. alone. It, like, is, it is the what house is, of formulaic. What is Columbo all about? Right. Like, it just muscles through. That's right. Based on that. And you kind of you end up waiting for, in, anticip- in, in high anticipation, as you do with much formula shows in high anticipation for the line of questioning, questioning, which you will know will be the last line of questioning. And you're hanging on every word. That's right. Like, yeah, that's just solid dialogue. Right. Yeah. What's the thing that he's going to pick up on? Also, cheap as fuck to shoot. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there's no big car chase or, like, shootout right. you're doing in Columbo. You just want to see Columbo mumble through some dialogue, you know what, and you're excited for it. What's also sweet about Columbo is that maybe it was because in the time in which it was filmed, and maybe it's because they didn't give a fuck, but they would reuse bad guys like they would use the same actor to play multiple villains throughout the six oh, or yeah. seven yeah. year it run made, it makes law and order look ridiculous it like, really does yeah. it's like oh wait didn't that it guy was the same season at some right. time didn't yeah. he kill his wife eight episodes ago <laughs> well of course he's the guy that killed his sister in this episode the guy's got a track record you know yeah. what i mean he's um, got priors so second <laughs> second on my list and um uh again you know, much of my childhood, my childhood is is a dialectical tension um, between um, horror films like It and The mm-hmm. Shining and The Exorcist and the the most comedic of comedies in black and white and early color. And so second on my list is I Love Lucy. Um, I don't know what it was about. Lucille Ball was kind of an early fascination uh, of mine because she was a fascination of my mother's. So my mom read biographies of Lucille Ball and so had... Uh, went out of her way to kind of educate me on the interactions that she was having with Ricky Ricardo in between the shows and the interactions going on between the real real life actors uh, mm-hmm. playing Fred Nethel Mertz yeah. on I Love, I Love Lucy. And so I think that there's a level of depth to that show that, that I don't get to a lot of other shows or I certainly don't have until I'm much older and I'm looking up these things on my own. But also just like... There are some fucking I Love Lucy episodes that are knockdown drag out hilarious. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Bon Bon episode and the Vitamin to Vegemin episode. This is comedy that has not and will not be reproduced. Also, it's professional AF, to use the term of this. It's like, yeah. it's like when you know what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. It's like, well, so-and-so hated so-and-so and so-and-so Fred and Ethel literally so-and-so. hated each other. Yeah, like, yeah. And it's just like, no. Right. We're going to make this silly ass sitcom. That's right. It's going to be as silly and sitcom as possible. We're going we're gonna to be we're going to be the torn up neighbors who have some funny shit to say and also like maybe abuse each other when we go home. Yeah. And it's going to be cool. You yeah. know what I mean? And so there was something so genuine and honest about the way I Love Lucy approached comedy. Um, and as I look at your list, uh, I see one stands out amongst the others, uh, and it's your number one, uh, The Incredible Hulk. Man, man. Oh, God. It taught me what formula could be. Sure. It taught me how comforting it could be to watch the exact same episode of a TV show for every season for the entire duration of it. Like, The Incredible Hulk is the most formulaic TV show perhaps ever. You can time it. Like, you can, like, click down to, like, when the first time is going to turn the Hulk, when the second time turns the Hulk. Like, oh, God, it's good. And just... 
the soundtrack, Lou Ferrigno. I mean, Lou come Ferrigno. on, as a kid, yeah. Lou Ferrigno is a powerful symbol for you. So, yeah, the Incredible Hulk TV show. Also, it was comic books. And it was watchable. It was, it was not. It, it is watchable. Yeah, it's not, and it holds up. It's not a terrible, terrible thing. Like most things pre uh, X Men, you know, the first yeah, X Men, yeah, in terms of superheroes, are interminably bad, awful, uh, like the unwatchably first bad. The Flash. Oh my god! Every Spider Man movie. Yep. Yep. Um, like, take your pick. But it was watchable. It had a superhero in it. Uh, it taught me what tropes were mm-hmm. like rewatching Incredible Hulk and like. The first time when you're a little kid, when you can't tell one episode from another, right? And you learn, oh, it's there's a formula to it, like that. That is revelatory. I loved it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Number one on my list, and maybe the hardest I've I've laughed at over a continual period of time at any given TV show is the Dick Van Dyke Show. Um, I don't. Is it? It's tough for me to say that one person shaped my understanding of comedy more than any other person there there was a formative figure in my understanding of what it meant to be funny but if i was going to go to the mat for it dick van dyke might be Mm -hmm. at the top of the list like he'd certainly be making an argument is what i'm saying that's a great show it was ruined for me because my mom was really into diagnosis murder oh yeah oh that'll and i fucking hated diagnosis murder right but around the time i got nick and knight i just like learned it was the diagnosis murder guy i never get a chance and then when i did give it a chance i was at the wrong age to see Mary Tyler Moore. Yes. Because yes. it gave me feelings that I didn't quite understand. Here's the thing. And I needed to get away. Absolutely. She might be one of the sexiest women oh my ever God. to be photographed. Yeah, look, we, we don't get into like we don't get into like, you know, the sexuality of any character ever. But I, I, I'm still not getting into my own sexuality because this is objective truth. That's right. That's right. But Mary Tyler Moore in the Dick Van Dyke show, who uh, is, is, yeah, sh- sure, she's she's a stay-at-home mom. Say what you want about gender norms. You know, it's also like late 50s, early 60s. I get that. Um, but she's also wanting to be so much more than that and is also just gorgeous and is like willing to stand up for herself. Mary Tyler Moore for me is like to this day one of the most attractive women I've ever seen. Oh, my God. But Dick Van Dyke, killer. Dick Van Dyke, in terms of just understanding comedy, um, Dick Van Dyke understood slapstick, right? There inherently, th- inherently, he, he's lanky, and his ability to use size to trip over things. There, there's in fact <laughs> an entire slapstick episode where he walks around slamming his face into his desk and falling over things. Dick Van Dyke understood slapstick. He also understood timing and sarcasm. And we just don't have a lot of comedians, I think, to this day, who have been able to be comedic in so many different meaningful ways in the course of a 23 or 25-minute television show, not to mention the supporting cast. And what I will say about Mary Tyler Moore, while the gender roles are not good of anything in that time of season, the joke is rarely at her expense. That's right. Like, it's even, like, Lucy gets more jokes as, like, oh, women, than Mary Tyler Moore does. Like, it's it's, she's a rational character. That's right. That's right. And she fights for and gets space in Dick Van Dyke as a performer Mm -hmm. on the show regularly because she's so uniquely talented. Also, the Dick Van Dyke show had uh, a a Halloween episode where there is a man uh, they all go to stay at a haunted cabin and there's a man whose face shows up in a uh, closet window or a closet door window and to this day, like, it kind of still haunts me (laughs) and I think back, you know, over 20 25 or 24 years or whatever, like having seen that episode, I don't know, when I was five or six, that that stuff still wicks me, it st- still sticks I love with that me. your mom's like, 
It's Wayne on Dick Van Dyke until five or six. Right. It, it too. Yeah. Yeah. I want. I don't want to be able to form memories yet. I in want his first womb. memory to be this. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Just headphones on the stomach. Yeah. Absolutely. Of kids screaming. Uh, no. I just. I. You know. And, and, and it too has some context for me. You know, learning later in life that like Dick Van Dyke was a raging alcoholic during much of the series, and that he doesn't remember filming a lot of it, and that you know he's tripping over things in some instances because he is that drunk and he's playing it that smooth. We, you know, not great. I get it, but we just don't have characters like that. Really honest to goodness, wonderful characters who can run the gamut of comedy, uh, and make a whole show feel, um, feel uniquely wonderful like that. So uh, I'm really glad that we got to talk about this today. It's been a nice, nice reflection on the past. We're really good at making lists of things that we interact with day to day. If you haven't noticed. Yeah, we're, yeah, we love that. Um, but getting to reflect on some stuff that, that kind of found us in more formative or older, or in this case, I suppose, younger stages, it was a, it was a cool exercise. So I'm glad that we did it. Also, this was beer five. So we're getting ready to move on to drunk enough, which is traditionally, uh, that beer, which is reserved for backers so if you're a backer or if this is a free episode you get it now uh and if not and you're just a backer you don't get it now it kind of depends because we're not totally sure where this is going to fall after hearing it or you're hearing it that's right and if you're not hearing it thanks so much for following us we've been (laughs) the mix six don't forget to find us on twitter at the mix six facebook facebook.com slash the mix six or on our website the mix six.com and don't forget to rate and review on itunes or if this this ends up being one of those free episodes for everybody because we do all that stuff anyway do all that stuff anyways (laughs) we're going to get more beer and we're going to go talk about something a little more difficult than no television shows and we'll see you in a second spencer what are you drinking it's the uh it's the silver bullet man <laughs> it's the coors light and i gotta be honest with you like i was happy that you took the miller light out of the fridge but you left. I wasn't. Me, you left me with arguably my least favorite, or certainly one of my least favorites of all of them. I honestly didn't want the Coors. The That's why beers. I went for the Miller. So now I'm going to drink a Coors Light, and I'm going to pray to something that it has changed the formula or flavor in 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 the time it's been since I last tasted a Coors Light and thought, well, this tastes like cold metal. <laughs> Please don't spill anything on my equipment. Fuck God, <laughs> that that has. So it got worse. <laughs> it tastes like you know when you bite your tongue and you start to bleed into your mouth. That coppery taste. Yeah. Like it's, or like licking a battery. Yeah. It, it says on the bottle that I think it goes bad on November 13th, 2017, but no. So you mean it can get it's worse? It's already there. It it's, can taste worse. It's gone bad. So is that a one? Uh, yeah. No, that's a one. <laughs> that's a uh, That's a chicken dance for me. Uh and I can't think of a world or an amount of alcohol that I would consume leading up to this in which it would be a two or higher either. <laughs> so kind of the ultimate yeah. the ultimate one. My head already hurts from three sips of this Miller Lite. Yeah, for sure it does, right? Like, That's the formaldehyde. Yeah. <laughs> um, so while we, while we choke down, what was a regrettable decision for to really to celebrate our 20th I'm going to title this episode... I suspect this episode was the mistake. We, we, it's, it's, it's all been one segment. If there was ever an opportunity to treat ourselves, it feels like a 20 milestone was that, that time to do it. And instead we thought... But we're workmanlike. Fuck that. Yeah. Yeah. Th- 
this is how I know your Marxist-like aesthetic <laughs> has worn off on me. That we had an opportunity... When we get to 20 episodes, <laughs> we drink like the people. That's right. That we had an opportunity to celebrate, and I said, no, no, we'll spend less on six beers than we normally spend on mm. one. So yes. anyways, while we um, suffer, <laughs> suffer through this, uh, and you choke down the remainder of that Miller Lite, and I make good on a promise to drink these beers... <laughs> What are we talking about and drunk enough, Caleb? So uh, we're probably we, we might be drunk enough, but this topic's a little too I heavy for all this light beer. Um, hey, so um, something that's been on my mind today for a variety of reasons. It's normally the thing that comes up, but I came up with the question here. It wasn't suggested. So does so vanity? If you hate it, it's Caleb's fault. Yeah, it's my fault. Does vanity enable or interfere with ethics? And if it's contextual, where is that line? Jesus. So here's where it comes from. Um, I don't have, as I'm getting older, a lot of ethical dilemmas. Uh, I'm pretty set in my ways. That's probably the problem with getting older, but it's also, you know, inexorable. Nice. When I do have sort of ethical dilemmas, like what would my ethics class say about this? Where is the right decision here? Um it is normally regarding my idea of what it means to be a good person yep. versus the possible outcomes of my actions. Um, and in that case, I wonder, does my idea of myself as a good person, does my performance I'm trying to put on, as we talk about performative identities in previous drunkenness, yeah. sort of interfering with what is the greater good? Or... Uh, am I just trying to rationalize for a decision that is otherwise shitty? Yeah. And I conti should continue to do the performance of being oh, a good person. Man, man, this is brutal. So, um, you know, you and I were talking about this one a little bit earlier today. You'd kind of pitch this idea to me. And in the moment, I thought, well, that's that's pretty difficult. And I kind of nodded along with some of the stuff you were saying because I thought there's no way I want to get involved in that Gordian knot of ethics and, yet, and vanity. You didn't suggest another drunk enough. I did not. Um, <laughs> and and so I suppose here you we were are. Focus on your Keanu Reeves list. Well, I was at a minimum driving. You're welcome for the safety. <laughs> um, but but here we are, right? I mean, I guess I guess we're talking about this. Um, I I think that for our sake, for the purpose of conversation, maybe if we had an example. Um, something that we could point to, right? So, so let me give you an example, a re reasonably contemporary example, and then kind of let you know what I'm using to evaluate this question, where, where I fall on this side yeah, of the yeah, line. Yeah. So, um, so in the instance of, for example, a, a rather benevolent GoFundMe situation, right? Being able to give some personal funding mm -hmm. uh, to a cause that I believe is a relevant, necessary cause, I found myself the other day thinking, I would like to give X. And then I got stuck on, on a fence post because I looked at X and part of me was like, well, X seems great. But the other part of me was like, but is X enough uh, or is X too much? And so then there's a question of, am I living up to what I believe to be the most ethical version of that decision or the most ideal version of that decision, which is the ability to give Y or Z or A or B? Mm -hmm. And in doing so, I'm looking in the rearview mirror at X, which was my original position. And now I'm evaluating where I landed as opposed to where I would like to ideally be, which I think is the vanity you're talking about, the ideal version of the self or, and the or, conservation of. Or how about this? You give X, right. all right? Do you give X anonymously or not? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So is it a random person you've never met before? Because then I think the anonymous decision doesn't really factor in. Sure. However, is it a person you know? 
So you give X, right? Yeah. You attach your name to it. Yeah. That, according to the Marxism, has mm-hmm. a cultural capital, yeah. all right? Um, have you done so selfishly and talked yourself into it being right. a charitable act? Yeah. Um, or if you give anonymously, is that selfish? Are you talking yourself up as, I am selfless, I am good, I am this wonderful person that seeks no uh, gratitude for my good actions? Yeah. Are you sort of talking yourself and rewarding yourself with that narrative right. when, in fact, the utility of your action might be better? If you're right. like, hey, I gave you this money, and then that person's not like, well, why didn't they give me the money? Right. Yeah, 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 why yeah. did they ignore it? Are they in a rough time? Or like, are, you, are you distressing the person you're seeking to help Right. By like not letting them say thank you to someone, sure. by not getting some sort of uh, pathos, some sort of release through that, um, just because you want to tell yourself this story about being this you know selfless benefactor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that that's where I come in on vanity. I'm like, to do good, uh, it's the catcher in the rye problem. Right. Like all all motivations are selfish, um, and I think that's mm. a pretty cynical viewpoint. But like that's what I worry about. I don't think that's true. I worry that's true. Like the idea that all motivations are selfless and that even when you do a good thing, you are doing a good thing because you like to tell yourself a story about being a good person. I so I I mean in theory I agree, but like I also want want to draw a distinction. I I do think there's a difference between the question that you're asking, which is can ethical decisions be untied from their vain uh impetuses and is there such a thing as an altruistic act? Yeah. I, I do think that those are are subtly but significantly different questions, um, because I think that I think that one, one I think that the difference is who is who's evaluating those things, um, and so I think that for you know you've identified two different two, two different settings here. One is which one is a setting in which the 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 receiver or some outside third party even gets to evaluate the ethicalness or the vanity of the act mm-hmm. and the other is the introspective intrapersonal position which is the did i make an ethical act or did i make a vain act and i do think there's a distinction between those two things um because making a a making a decision because i think it benefits others is qualitatively and qual- maybe quantitatively, depending on how you feel about that, different than making a decision because I believe others will interpret it or perceive it as such. Now, that doesn't mean that both both of those things aren't involved when I make the decision, or in this case, make the contribution. Mm-hmm. There is both how much it materially benefits the other person, and I think that's a good thing, and how much the thing is perceived to benefit others or perceived to... Uh, creates a perception of me or my malice or my altruism or whatever it is. But I do think that those are, those are different things. So are you asking at its core a question of, is there such a thing as an altruistic act? Or are you asking, um, can an ethical decision be detached from its vanity? Um, probably the second one more so. Okay. What I am arguing is that I'm assuming vanity is a constant. Right. I am sure. asking, is it helping the area of ethics more? Are harming. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so that's my. So let's say you find a hundred dollar. This actually happened to me as a right. child. Yeah. Let's say you find a hundred dollar bill in a parking lot. Yeah. In Walmart. Yeah. So my father and I finding the hundred dollar bill looked everywhere from everyone around us for the hundred dollar bill. They all very honestly said no, it was not their hundred dollar bill. Yeah. We could do nothing to find the person hundred dollar bill. So my dad said, I guess you have a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. 
To which I said, no, we can't do that. So I went inside and I turned the $100 bill into Walmart in case anyone found it. Now, what my father told me I'd done, and what I definitely did, was give Walmart, a you know, psychotic corporation, right. $100. Yeah. I did that to feel good about my child self. Right. Yeah. However, in terms of utility, had I sacrificed that I am you know, a good person who does good things and is morally right and true at all times and been like, I have a hundred dollars now. I don't know that anyone would find it if I put it back down. I don't know what they would do it for. My family isn't rich. I have a responsibility for my family. I should just give it to my dad. who was a little pissed. I insist to turn it in, but good father allowed me to make a mistake. Is that the better choice? Is that the more moral action? Did vanity interfere with the moral action or did vanity motivate it? That's my concern. Is it a plus or a minus? Does it add or detract? Or is it contextual? Like, I understand, like, vanity is like, well, I can't go to the Peace Corps because they don't have my hair product there. Would not be adding to ethics, you right, know. Right. But I'm talking about these edge cases where, like, where does the idea of being a good person interfere with the utility yeah. of what would actually be best? Right. Um, and in your, your estimation of these things, this is an either-or, not a both-and. Well... In a situation in which I have to make one choice or the other, it is by necessity in either or. Well, yeah. Uh, so, but where I recognize this vanity entering in, what do I do? Yeah. Do I just go with it and be like, yes, the reason you do good things is because you think of yourself as a good person. Vanity is the motivation for the act because you don't have some sort of religious higher power you're aspiring sure. to. So just roll for it. Yes, you're vain about it, but sure. at least something good's coming of it. Right. Or is vanity a tool of rationalization I'm using to distract myself from doing a thing that might have more utility? So that for me, the, the, the either or you've parsed there is actually, that that's not as much of an either or for me as the either or in terms of you're either going to do this thing or that thing and you're trying to figure out which one vanity motivates. Yeah. I, I actually think that in many instances, vanity can kind of be a both and into the worlds you've described, right? It's the it's both the reason that I think of myself as a moral agent and the impetus for doing what I think is the most moral thing. Mm-hmm. And so what you're really asking, I think, is not a question of vanity or ethics, but a question of material reward or narrative fulfillment, I guess, in some Utility way. Utility versus yeah, narrative. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That, that, to me, is kind of the harder distinction, right? Because vanity probably both motivates me to be and also acts as a seatbelt in some ways on my ability to be an ethical person, right? The, the bystander effect, right? The idea yeah. that if someone falls over, everyone's going to stand there and look rather than help them up to save face. I don't want to be a part of this kind of like, you know, shit show that has happened in front of me, which mm-hmm. is awful, but, you know, it's nonetheless morally motivating such that you protect yourself in social standing. It, it, it's, it's a vanity issue. But but it, but that same impulse also motivates you to be you know the highest of character in certain moral situations. Yeah, exactly. I the vanity is the sole thing motivating you outside of say some sort of like soul or right. intrinsic religion thing. If you're in a situation in which there is no moral standing, right? So the there is no is, social component to right. it, and your moral choice is strictly upon you. And I worry that at moments when I am not being judged, at moments when I am not like being put under the microscope, yeah. If my vanity is not, you know, detracting from the utility of the social good. Sure. Producer Ross? Well, I think this is kind of ignoring, or there's one element of this sort of discussion that's uh, being overlooked. How dare you? I know, uh, right? Uh, It is sympathy. And I think, for example, your example of turning in the $100 bills, I think, was maybe, I mean, maybe you can tell me I was wrong, but uh, was in part at least motivated by your sympathy for this 
imagined person that lost missing, $100. Yeah, that lost $100. That sucks, yeah. And so, and I think that's distinct from vanity. Uh, the idea that I wouldn't want to treat people the way I, I want to treat people the way I want to be treated. Uh, is important when sort of like how I think that should be separated from vanity. The idea that I want to be feel good about myself uh, versus uh, sympathy. So uh, and I think so. I don't know. But yeah, but I how think does that sympathy factor into that GoFundMe situation that he brought up? Because uh, the need is there. The, yeah. the need is constant. The need is constant with regardless of what you do, whether you go anonymous or put your name on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's the act. It's like I want, I would want other people to contribute to my GoFundMe. Right. Uh, so. Yes, but like, okay, you've made the decision to yeah. do it. What name do you put? Well, but sympathy also factors in another important element here, and no. this, this is a key do distinction. Do you cheapen the act narratively by putting your name on it? Well, but here, here's where sympathy matters. No, because I didn't, yeah. fi- I didn't find whatever money I was going to give in a parking lot. I feel like that was money that I earned. So even if I don't put my name on it, I feel like that's money that I'm giving of my own accord. I mean, I do think there is something, you know, whereas producer Ross has added sympathy to the back end of the decision to create some sense of a buffer between what you're talking about, uh, uh, vanity and ethics. Yeah. On the front end of that too is a question of input. Um, Have I earned the ability to give in the first place, which is a privileged question, but it's totally different if I picked that two hundred that hundred dollars up in the parking lot, uh, and it wasn't mine to give in the first place. And I said, "Well, now I've just stumbled upon a hundred dollars, so I might as well put it towards." Yeah, but isn't sort of the decision of have I earned it fraught with the ability of what am I worth? Like, isn't that sort of a a pure invitation to vanity? Like judging whether I'm worth this good or worth this action, isn't that inherently mm, vain? No. I, I mean, it, it, it certainly can be, but inherently no. I think because I was walking across a parking lot and found $100, I mean, I could certainly tell myself, uh, myself a story in which my own personal self-worth landed me at this moment in this place to have stumbled yeah, but you upon a $100 right? bill. No. Yeah, so you don't feel like you earned that money, right? No. So... You give it to McDon. You give it to McDonald's, or you give it to Walmart, or whatever Walmart you found it parking lot you found it in, and you don't keep it. I don't know about that. See, that's the thing. Right. That's that's where you get with that kind of thinking, right? It sort of loops back on itself uh, in this sort of endless circle. I don't feel like I earned this hundred dollars. I have sympathy for the person who lost it. I have no recourse to give it back to them because I've exhausted all uh, options. So I give it to a corporation that obviously kept it no one yeah, came back i don't that. think i don't think that i uh, of all the things I and think this was because I, I was a child right but at the same time like right we're, we're spitballing here so you know walmart don't stop listening to the podcast um <laughs> best guess yeah walmart you want to back us anytime if we'll, i felt like I'd, I'd exhausted all reasonable options i also don't know that my answer would have been turned into walmart yeah but i get why it was for i get why it was for you and i'm, I'm not saying that i wouldn't make that decision uh you know i say that but you know when i was working at the theater and i was 17, 18, and someone left a $50 bill on the counter. I mean, I kept it in the register for three days waiting for someone to come back to it before I took it. So I guess I was kind of like idealizing some sympathetic person who'd lost $50 and would obviously come back looking for it. I mean, like, this situation's happened again. I find money at school. Sure. I turn it in every time. Yeah, yeah. Most of the time, it doesn't get claimed. I'm just hoping it does get claimed. But Now, I don't feel bad giving money to a school that was left on a school floor when I couldn't find the person who dropped the money. Is idealizing... But at the same time, like... Is idealizing the victim in this instance? Victims is a really strong term there, so I'm sorry. Idealizing the the that who has lost is that vanity, or is the vanity in your mind the 
I'm being a good person because I'm because I am thinking about someone who has lost and therefore taking a proactive measure to make sure they don't continue to lose. I'm gonna call it vanity because I don't want to get into like the psychology of like in, when we get into the earning thing, like yeah. the self hatred. You know, I'm not deserving of a hundred dollars of gutter money. Like um, I don't want to get into that because I, a I don't have the terms to examine it completely sure. in myself. And B, Protestant upbringing, it's probably going to take me to places I don't, I don't want to be. Yeah. Um, so what I will say is that I worry that like the sort of conception of yourself as a moral person will sort of interfere with the moral action at times in a fallen objective world of material reality, in a world in which, sure. you know what, if I took that $100 and gave it to a charity. Right. Right. Why didn't I do that? Yeah. Whereas it was still like, you know, I could have done that, but I still did lost someone money. I still did the easiest action to support myself view in the short term right. rather than do something else. So like that's the real tricky part for me. Like Yeah, but but in one of those instances you're restoring you're you're attempting to restore ideal balance. Someone had this thing, they no longer have it. You you want to build as many conditions as you can whereas they would get it back. Mm-hmm. In the I'll take it and give it to charity, after having exhausted many of the reasonable options, that's not balance. I mean that still heavily weights towards one side of the scale, which was your ability to discretionarily use use that money for an end that you saw fit Mm -hmm. or deemed significant. Um, You know, I think the trick, at least in my mind right now that I'm struggling with, and again... And of course, at that point, you've already designated yourself as unworthy or undeserving of charity. Right, yeah. Or serendipity at this point. right. You've you've written yourself out of... You're undeserving of, like, you know, fate, literally. You're not acquiring the thing. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. You've become an interlocutor to either some ideal narrative end on... On the yeah, restore- what motivates that if not ego? Right. Um, what motivates that if not ego? I don't. I don't know that I have a good answer for you. Yeah. And I want to be clear, partially because I'm not like 100 sober, and also partially <laughs> because I, I guess I haven't engaged this at a level I'd hoped I would. At, you know, come 31. Um, I don't know. That's not to say that I can't come up with another answer, but it is to say that I don't have another one off the top of my head. I mean, that's fine. Yeah. A drunk enough doesn't have to end it like thesis statement right well yeah i definitely don't think this one's going to and many of them haven't to <laughs> mm-hmm. be sure but what motivates that other than ego i don't know i i, I suppose that that and the, we haven't even gotten to the question of like is ego inherently right, bad right, which right. is why i phrased it as like is vanity helping or hurting i think the thing that i'm most likely to say is still probably still probably a question of ego the thing that i'm most likely to say is how how rightly or wrongly i think i've appraised the needs of the other Mm-hmm. And in this instance, the other could be the person that I feel has, you know, uh, unfortunately lost their $100 or the charitable cause that I think could significantly benefit from $100. But, but again, that's motivated by whether or not I feel like I've significantly appraised or, or successfully appraised um, the need there. And that, that's a question Which of Which is in a function of how well you think you appraise things. Yeah, generally. that's right. And that, that's a question of ego. And so in some ways, I guess what, what you've done is you've kind of sent me into a spiral about, <laughs> about you know, charitable giving, giving in general. This is, part, general. Of the, this is part where the party dies and everyone just gets kind of quiet I and feel, introspective. I feel like the part where the party Checking dies is we open the Miller Lite. Uh, I feel like that was kind of where things... Yeah, yeah. Are we doing the chicken yet? Things... Oh, we're, definitely, we're definitely into the chicken dance a little... Well, we're hard in the chicken hey, dance. Hey, is that public domain? Because that could just be the outro for this. Please do not. I, please do not. I had looked for a remix. That's great. 
even, Commons license. Even if it is, <laughs> I implore you, of all of the editing you haven't done, <laughs> do not start now being the discerning producer we've been looking for for 20 episodes. Please. Um, well, hey, look, if you've been listening this whole time, thanks so much. And if you've gone down this um, frankly depressing and if... I don't think it's that depressing. Eh, it's a little depressing <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, we, we appreciate everything that you do for us. Thanks for being a listener and a backer at any level. We absolutely love having you. And we hope that you've enjoyed this as much as we have. If you're not following us on Twitter, please do at The Mix 6, Facebook, Facebook.com slash The Mix 6. Don't forget to check out our website, TheMix6.com. And if you've not rated or reviewed on iTunes, please do. Although, if you're unhappy with us, please don't. And I, and I mean that in the most sincere ways. Only if you're enthused might I ask you to rate and review us on iTunes, and I don't feel a, li- a little bit bad about asking that. Um, once again, thanks so much for listening. I'm Spencer. I'm Caleb. And this has been The Mix 6. We'll see you next time.